Welcome to the 192nd thousandth, I have no idea what episode this is, of the TalkScript podcast. It has been a minute since we have done a podcast, and we are coming just, um, I was going to say guns blazing, and I'm like not sure if that's really appropriate these days to say. <laughs> yeah. I just realized that. Um, so now I've said season. it, so it's out there. It's a new season. Yeah, this is this is like Doctor Who. It's just, you know, it gets a new reboot. Um but now it's kind of we're we're back with a more of a classic lineup because I am Tori Rice, as you already know from my annoying voice. And with me <laughs> is the one, the only, he doesn't do any other JavaScript podcast like JS Party. It is Nick <laughs> Nisi. Hey. Oh, you didn't do your catchphrase oh, from DC. Yeah. Ahoy, well, ahoy. no, you shouldn't. You know what? You shouldn't <laughs> probably. That's a little weird. You're like, yeah, I didn't do that because that's the podcast people listen to. And this one, I would just, yeah, no, it's fine. Um, <laughs> cool. So today on this episode, we are doing something a little bit different because we have two interviews. One is with Rob Yoder of 1Password and the other with Joel Parks of Grape City. Mm-hmm. Um now, I am going to just admit right now that I was not on the interview with Rob Yoder of 1Password, which is a huge bummer because I really wanted to pick a bone with him about how come it constantly tells me my password's been reused, I shouldn't use insecure passwords. Like, I'm pretty sure one, two, three, four, five exclamation point. Like, with the exclamation point, that seems pretty secure. Like, they say use... You know, and like, and, and I use it for every site. And so now all of a sudden it's telling me you shouldn't. And then it's like, oh, don't use that password for your vault. You know, and it's just like, well, <laughs> what do you want from me? You know, like I thought you're supposed to make passwords easier. You know, it, it doesn't make it easier if you just save the same password over and over. That's not the one password. That's not the, the one password they want Wait, you to have. Have I misunderstood then what the whole point of one password is? <laughs> yes. You don't just have one password? Okay, Wow. <laughs> It's not All just right, a I need log to go of, back I use now this and... password here, this one password here and here and here, but I never use any new passwords. Oh, okay. This makes way more sense now because <laughs> it was giving me stuff I couldn't remember. You know, it's like 1A, capital N, 4Z, 2. Shit, and I'm like, password. <laughs> okay. Before we get to uh, the one password interview, we have a segment I am affectionately calling, okay, Nick, but seriously, why them? Now, the background for this, for all of you OG listeners, is basically that I constantly give Nick a hard time about using Vim. And every time he says Vim, I'm like, wait, you use Vim? And um, I've never actually explored that topic because I have viewed Vim like I view most cults and that I try to stay away <laughs> unless they're offering me something really good to be part of it. Um, you know, if you're, if you, you look, if you're coming with your cult, you got to bring it, you know, and when I couldn't use my mouse, I was out, you know, and I was stuck in Vim. I think I have a computer somewhere still in Vim. It can't get out. <laughs> it's just, I had to throw the computer away, I think. Um, so yeah. So Nick, I, I, I have leveled a lot of, uh, jokes at Vim and Vim users, um, like I just did, but I really am wondering, like, but seriously, why Vim? You know, like I use VS code when I have to code, which no one wants to see. But when I do it, I do it via um, VS code. And I just am curious, you know, wasn't Vim made in like the 70s or something? So why don't you just, you know, all of my loaded questions here, why don't you take it from there and just tell me why Vim? And should I try it? You should. Absolutely. Trying to join the cult. That's what I'm trying to do. (laughs) Yeah. I think that that's a very apt uh, comparison probably because, you know, based on my, my Netflix watching and understanding 
the ins and outs of a cult because I, I do aspire to start one someday. Um, oh, yeah. 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 Like you have to like what you have to like make people feel really good and you have to isolate them from their lives, basically, and their family and friends and everything. And you I mean, it's just constant manipulation. And and I think like that starts with like, you know, you isolate people from their mouse and yeah, you give them a lot of like. Oh, productivity! You're a 10x or writing all this extra code when you're not. But you know, you're you're. I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. As with long this, as you're, but. as long as your editor is telling you these things, then yeah, I think it's it is reinforcing. Mm-hmm. So like, I really enjoy watching you guys spend hours <laughs> and hours configuring things that would take two seconds to just do manually. But boy, you could make this thing and you could write it in Lua, and man, <laughs> you could just. And and it would just make your life so much better to then cut out those two seconds of work to do it the manual way. Um, you know, I, I guess I guess is it really is that the draw for you? It's just the constant. I think you just maybe you like to code so much that you're like, how about I code my editor to do things for me? <laughs> it's that. It's I really like my editor to be slightly broken at all times, which is pretty much <laughs> what a Vim, a Vim developer or a Vim user is is in a constant state of. No, Vim developer and Vim user is the same thing. There are no differences. You are the same. It is one. That's <laughs> yeah. a Venn diagram is a circle. <laughs> but to really understand that, like you mentioned or you asked about like the history of it. And I don't know like the full history of it. I know that Vim specifically came out in the 90s, early 90s. Uh, before that, it's it was built on top of VI, uh, and that came out of Ed. Maybe um, there's a whole lineage of like, you know, it very much started with very old computers and has moved forward from there. I haven't used Vim in five, maybe six years. It's been a long time uh, because I'm now on NeoVim, which is the the you know the new Vim and. Uh, but the old Vim is still going strong, but they kind of have a little slightly different philosophies right now. Um, and you mentioned like rewriting everything in Lua. That's one of the big changes that NeoVim provides is it, instead of having to learn this esoteric Vim script language, you can learn this esoteric Lua language. Yeah. Yeah. Way to (laughs) just really... Okay, so first off, VI was created by Bill Joy in 76. And then, I don't know, Vim was 91. I was unaware that Neo Vim wasn't just Vim. Um, Because you guys just, and I say you guys, I mean all of the cult, you know, whatever (laughs) you are, you you tend to just say Vim. And I just assumed that was the same thing. Um, When I started using Neo Vim, like to open Neo Vim, it's NVim on your, like in your terminal. But... Mm -hmm. When I first switched over, I was like, this is just a fad and I'm going to try using it until Vim catches up because like, you know, they're just going to spark like a, an arms race against each other. And it's just going to kickstart development on on regular Vim. And I'll be back there as, you know, the proud supporter of Vim that I am. And so I aliased Vim to NVim. And so to this day, I still just type Vim, but it opens NeoVim. And I just I'll probably never remove that that alias. I'll just always use that. And refer to NeoVim as Vim, and I'm probably not alone in that because muscle memory and all. Hmm. So, what exactly do you get out of it other than the smug satisfaction of using an esoteric editor? <laughs> I think that you are downplaying the smug satisfaction <laughs> bit. <laughs> I think I might be honestly I'm trying not to you're you're just really like every time I say something like no that's absolutely correct and I'm like well I was kind of joking but now I'm starting to wonder if this is really a joke um man 
I mean, yeah, it's it's fast. A that is like the primary thing is it's very fast. I, I open the editor, you know, I type Vim, I'm right in, and I can immediately start going places. And it's with very familiar tools. Like I'm very comfortable on the command line now. Um, whereas, you know, I, I open, I have VS code on my computer and I will open it up occasionally and it takes a little while to start up and that's not everything, you know, once it's started up, it's fine and it's fast. Um, I'm not accustomed to the, the key bindings of it. So it's harder to move around in it for me. Um, but I really got into it because I was forced to, (laughs) Uh, Okay. I was brainwashed. So you were forced into the cult. Your parents just brought you into it. You didn't have a choice. Okay. I was really it, like in college, my freshman year, they, the intro to computer programming class, we had to do everything on a, um, I think it was called Phoenix, but it was a, it was a Linux machine in the cloud. And you just had to SSH into that, learn how to use Vim. They had nano and Vim on there and they mm-hmm. taught us kind of the basics of Vim, but it was so basic. Like I would have to, you know, edit, open a file. And if I wanted to open another file, I would close Vim and then type Vim and then the other file that I want to open. And like, I didn't know how to move around in it. I still use the arrow keys and everything, but that was like how I did most of my college assignments was just in Vim. And it was all C plus plus and C and a little bit of Perl. And it was just forced upon me. And then I got to my first job out of college and they're like, here's Java, here's Eclipse. And I was like, whoa, this is too much. Eclipse is terrible. And so I, like we were on a Windows machine and I I gravitated towards Notepad++ back then. And mm-hmm. and then like quickly, like within a year, I had like a Linux VM running on my <laughs> Windows machine and I was just doing everything in there. And I had, uh, I tried like, I can't remember, G... Gnome edit or G edit. Yeah. Like Gnome mm-hmm. for the Linux yeah, distro. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't like it too much. Like I was like, Oh, this will be a replacement for, for that. And I tried sublime text and yep, uh, yep. I got a Mac in 2009 and I got it because I wanted to be the cool guy with, with text mate and everything looked so pretty and you know, yeah, becoming a rails yeah, developer. about text mate. Yeah. <laughs> right. That was like, the appeal of like, Oh, I want a Mac because I want to run text mate and it's so beautiful. And then I just didn't like it. I didn't like some aspect of it. I didn't like something about sublime, um, for some reason. And so then I was just like, you know what? I'm going to try and go back to Vim and like really learn how to use it. And I think I saw somebody at a meetup, like with a file drawer open in Vim. And I was like, wow, I could actually, you can do more than just like edit a single file in it and you can turn on syntax highlighting and all that. And so I like, invested a little bit of time into actually learning that and then like i actually took uh the guy who writes the pragmatic programmer book on like mastering vim or something uh, his name's drew neal uh back in like 2011 he was te- teaching like a a vim expert class and it was like 200 two or three hundred dollars or something and i paid with my own money to go sit in this remotely for a day and just that's, I mean, that, that was the, the culmination of my, my cult, you know, I paid my dues. And so now and... people pay your, <laughs> now people pay you, right? And then you pay them, right? It's like a, yeah, is, exactly. it, is it like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I need to, uh, yeah. to work on people paying me part for it though. I, yeah. Indirectly, um, okay. I get paid to write, Vim, write in Vim, but it would be, I need it to be more direct somehow so okay <laughs> here's my question now that's cool and like i get it it works and 
it has an appeal. And like, I guess you can be faster if you never have to move your hands off the keyboard. I get it. Like, I don't do that all day. For me, I don't want to learn the keyboard shortcuts because I have my own keyboard shortcuts to learn. I mm-hmm. get it. But here's the thing I don't understand. Why does it never work? Mm. Y'all are constantly, constantly rewriting things, changing config files. What's the appeal of that? Why? Well, it's growing and evolving, but the problem is it doesn't, like your configuration files don't grow and evolve with the editor. So like I mentioned, going to NeoVim and specifically NeoVim 0.5 plus, which just came out like this summer, uh, that is what enabled that that Lua runtime, which is much faster. So plugins can be much faster and much more robust. So then you want to rewrite everything in your config to use these new faster, prettier plugins that do a lot more. And then uh, NeoVim built in support for uh, the language server protocol. And that's what VS Code uses to like talk to TypeScript to know like, you know, you've, you, mm-hmm. these are the properties that are available here. And this is what the signature looks like for that method you're calling and things like that. That's all built in now to Vim so it can talk to the language server. And so like in a way that perpetuates it, like I constantly have to update things to uh, keep up with all of that. But then like it keeps me in there because it's like, why would I switch to VS Code when I'm effectively getting the same VS Code experience now for like those but language you don't, levels? But then you don't have to code all those things. So, exactly. you know, then... And now I don't yeah, have to learn all of those, fun. the key bindings for VS Code. I get all of those. But I will tell you that like, and then the, like the other problem that I have is I have uh, I have a uh, an automated thing that runs in my terminal like nightly and it just goes Vim plus plug update plus plug upgrade plus Q. And so at some point during the night, all of the plugins update and those plugins are constantly like, the problem is- So your just- Vim's really into Q is what I'm hearing. Great. Another cult. Yep. See? See? It's all it's all connected. <laughs> but it, it all just updates and then it breaks because, you know, every one of my Vim plugins is just like reading off of the main branch and it's not uh, like it's not versioned in any way. So it's just like, well, we broke that or we're changing that and you get like a little error message or something, but it's completely broken until you go in and fix it. So then you're constantly tweaking and tweaking. But I will tell you, that the only, like, I see other editors, specifically VS Code. I feel like VS Code is, like, they're doing so much in terms of, like, changes and and improvements mm-hmm. to the editing experience. Like, it's really cool that you can run it all in the browser and things like that. Um, but none of their features are interesting to me, except for some of the more social features. Like, technically, I could do this stuff with Vim, but, like, if I were to, you know, open up SSH give you like a, an SSH login to my computer and let you log into my Tmux session and run Vim with me. You don't know my my custom key bindings for everything. Right. And so it would just be a nightmare. Whereas VS Code is like this vanilla friendly, you know, this is how you always use it. And we don't change much. Um, it's very bland in that way. And I mean that in maybe a good way and maybe a bad way too. Um, but it does give I you like uniformity those. is more of the thing you're yeah. you're you just want it your own weird way it's like exactly. yeah it's like going to a hilton you know like every time you walk into <laughs> one of the rooms you're like yep this is a hilton room that's where i'm at right now uh and you're like i want an airbnb that's what i want mm-hmm. exactly and then when i get there i'm going to rearrange the furniture i'm going to break things we're like the remind the me never Nirvana to rent you out my house 90s, right yeah 
<laughs> so if you had to move away from Vim, if you were mm-hmm. just forced, if a, if a job was like, nope, you got to use our thing, uh, we were using VS Code. Uh, like, what are some things that you would miss? Is it just like the key bindings? Is it, you know, constantly n- not working? Like, what would you miss exactly? <laughs> uh, truthfully, you want me to be completely honest? You know, this te- this segment has gone really off the rails from how I expected <laughs> this to go. And I'm loving every minute of it. So, yes, I Good. do want you to be completely honest here. <laughs> I would miss being known as the vi- the weird Vim guy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you can as, just tell as everyone much as I'm you actually use Vim. known. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, you just walk into your grocery store and like, hey, is that Vim guy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's real, <laughs> real big appeal. It's a popular thing out there in the world. It must be tough. It's probably like the Beatles. Like, you just get exactly. chased around. Like, it must be... I didn't really think about that aspect of it. Huh. Yeah. Well, I should start but using I mean, Vim now. I, I feel like, you know, in, in various work slacks and whatnot, and, and, you know, just tech slacks in general, like... You know, somebody makes a comment on, on that, or or you know has a, a, a meme that disparages how you can't quit Vim. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if I didn't come in there to give a reaction, who would? That's a that's a really good point. <laughs> um, well, I guess the only thing that maybe we could agree on is that Emacs is terrible. Is that still a thing that everyone says? Is that awful? It is. Yeah. Okay. I mean, Emacs yeah. at this point, I think, is trying to be Vim, but it's also trying to be everything oh. else too. So, oh, wow. <laughs> I bet I bet that the biggest problem with Emacs is that it works um, consistently. That might be a maybe, problem. maybe. But I don't know. I've I never hear used somebody it. talk about it. They're always like it's Emacs in evil mode, which is like Vim emulation mode. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, um, I've used uh, I'm going to be honest. I used Vim a little bit back in my younger days when I would be hacking on Linux or maybe some uh, Mac OS stuff back then. I think I got a Mac in 2001, 2002. So it's like right after like Panther was released or no, oh, wow. what was the first one? It was, was, that, it was one of the early ones. It was, was, it was that a OS long 10? time ago. Or were yeah. they're pre OS 10. No, it was OS 10. Like it was uh, like the first, um, like it was the first one that was outside. Oh, it was Cheetah. Uh, Cheetah. Cheetah, Puma, ja- oh, it was Jaguar. That's what I used. That was the first one. It was Jaguar 10.2. Nice. Um, yeah, it came actually with Puma, I think. Maybe. No. Yeah, it, I think it came with Puma. And then like, but I had an upgrade f- to Jaguar like immediately when I got it. So it didn't make any difference. Um because it wasn't a huge difference. Like the timeline was like January Puma came out and like August Jaguar came out. And I think I, I got like, I think it might've even came with, see, see now I'm just, I don't know. It's a long time ago, but yeah, mm-hmm. I had a, I had a really cool um, snow white um, G3 iBook was my first one off of eBay that I bought. And nice. uh, yeah, man, I was, I was loving that. But anyway, I used, I used some Vim to do some stuff and, you know, obviously quitting Vim isn't intuitive, but, you know, once you know how to do it, it's like, okay, I think it's the, I think the biggest annoyance to me is seeing that like, there's like a, it's like, there's like a view mode and an edit mode. And that makes no sense to me because I'm in oh. an editor. It's literally, I'm editing. Why wouldn't I want to always just be in the editing mode? Aha. That doesn't make sense. See, that is, that is absolutely what I would miss, but I didn't say that because almost every editor, other editor has some kind of Vim emulation for better or worse. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, like I, I can go into VS code and uh, I'll immediately run into 10 things that I just can't stand because it doesn't work exactly as I expect. Uh, but it, it is good enough. And the, the thing is like, the reason it has that is because when you're editing, like writing code is probably the thing that you do the least uh, as a developer. Like, Well, yeah, because you're writing Vim plugins to make it work. <laughs> Touche. Uh, but like what you do far more is looking at code and navigating the code. And so having that modal like editing view where you go mm. into like the navigation mode, the normal mode, you it makes it easier to jump around the file, which is what you do a lot more than than writing because writing's the easy part copilot can write the code for me i mean that's legit terrifying <laughs> who gave it the, who who came up with that idea that like we're gonna let computers get smart and then they'll start writing code and they can write code to write other computers to code it's like no this is we've we all learned this from the movies that this is a bad idea but here we are <laughs> doing it anyway like yeah. what could go wrong everything everything could go wrong why are we doing this but you know, Isn't all right, everything right going now, wrong already. So it, I mean, it's a really good point. Just par for the course. We're gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> it's just this year, this last few years. Yeah. yeah. My kid asked me. He said, uh, "Do you think? Uh, do you think I'm gonna live through any other pandemics?" I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah." <laughs> and then I'm like, "Oh, he's 11. I probably shouldn't have said that. I should have been like, oh, I don't know. Probably not, man. This is this is unique.'" And then I'm like, "Well, no, it's, yeah, it could probably happen." This I mean, is we're all compared to the flu. water famine you're about to go through. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, just <laughs> I don't want to get into that. I'm like, hey, you joined that water I just gave you. So uh, enjoy it a lot and remember that because one day, hey, you may see the movie Dune. Yeah. So it's like that's Arizona right there. Dune is whatever that planet's called. Arrakis. Uh, I just watched Arrakis. it last night. That's why I know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I watched it. The night it came out, I've never read the books, but now I'm, I'm actually working through the audiobook because oh, nice. uh, I... I I love me and this audiobook is awesome. It's got like voice actors and nice. so the scenes like have background music. There's voice actors doing stuff and I was like, "Oh, this is good because if I just have some dude being like and then the door opened. He walked into the door. He and I'm like, "Okay, I'm bored. Like I can't do this. Some ebooks are just bad, but this is real good." Um anyway, uh, that's me plugging the Dune audiobook on Amazon. That's if you if you're interested. The movie was excellent though. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. That answers my question, I guess. I mean, it just basically sounds like because is the answer. There's really, I was <laughs> expecting a lot more reasons and it turns out it's just because there's really no reason why. So, um, <laughs> I you will know, tell any you, closing thoughts on that? Yeah. As I've gotten older and become a more mature Vim user, I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Like if you, if you ask me, you know, should I use Vim? Like my, my answer is like, maybe like you, <laughs> you, you will enjoy it. It will take some getting used to, uh, but you'll, you'll be less productive getting like, as you get going and then you'll get more productive. But honestly, like you don't, as I said, you don't write, spend a lot of your time as a developer writing code. It's more thinking about code, uh, navigating code and mostly updating Jira which is horrible. Yeah, um, no, I mean, 90% <laughs> of all development project is just navigating and updating yeah. Jira. Like and arguing in and, Slack. And meetings, meetings. Yes, and meetings. meetings. Meetings and arguing in Slack. So, I mean, yeah. is it going to make a, make you like a 10x developer? No, not at all. And so I would just recommend that you learn. I'd like tool. to be a 1x developer myself, but I'm never going to get there, I don't think. <laughs> Me too. Damn ADHD. <laughs>
So, you know, that's a really good point I hadn't really considered is the how much my view of this was actually more tainted by the fact that whenever I sit down and code something as a non-developer, like that's not my day job, um, which you'll hear everyone uh, for the next few episodes when we do interviews, I say this every time when I'm talking to people, it's that I'm a designer, so I don't code a lot. But when I do write code, um, I generally have a purpose and it's generally a small prototype of something. And so for me, all my time is spent writing code because I'm not refactoring things. I'm not reading through other people's code. I'm not trying to find out how something works. Like I'm brute force making something work. So to me, spending all of that time, like 100% of that time is sitting there. Okay. 80% of the time is spent coding and then 20% of it is spent on MDN and then Stack Overflow trying to figure out how come the thing I think is working isn't working mm-hmm. um you know or or the css grid reference because i'm not gonna be able to ever remember oh, that yeah. syntax it's not possible nope. i'm pretty sure it's not possible <laughs> same with flexbox like it's just it's not possible so yeah. um you know those are that's where i spend most of my time when i'm coding so i guess that that is a really good insight in in into why that might be good for you is that you your job is not just writing code whereas when i'm thinking about coding i'm thinking about my experience which is just bashing on code until it works so mm-hmm. Yeah, you do that and argue in Slack and update Jira and push things to GitHub and pray that somebody reviews your pull request. Yeah. All right. And sob that's in cool. the corner. Yeah. You, and sob. Well, it. I mean, listen, I do a lot of that too. <laughs> a lot of the sobbing in the corner things going on here. <laughs> cool. Well, then I guess this will take us into the interview that I am stealthily not in with uh, Rob Yoder of 1Password. And this is now the portion where I'm going to play bumper music, maybe. And then you're going to say something like, we're back. <laughs> and I was thinking when you kept saying that when we were doing these interviews, I'm thinking, I don't know what we're going to be back from. We don't have commercials. Yeah. You want me to write, work, record some commercials? You keep saying, we're back. Like, I was going to just seamlessly cut into it. And instead, you're like, we're back. So that's, that's a movie from my childhood. We're back, a dinosaur story. And I was just thinking oh, about okay. that every time. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense then. Okay. Yeah, perfect. All right. Well, everyone, enjoy the interview. All right. Uh, well, I would like to introduce uh, a new co-host with me today, and that's Dylan Sheeman. Dylan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Good to be here. Good to join. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. And uh, joining us as well is Rob Yoder from One Password. Rob, how's it going? Hey, it's going great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Awesome. Yeah. Welcome to the show. And uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we're going to be talking about 1Password. And um, I've, I've heard through the grapevine that uh, y'all are very big uh, TypeScript users now. Yeah. So we started using TypeScript um, back when 1Password.com as a service and not just a you know web page advertising 1Password um, launched. So we were looking at basically how do you how do you provide a, a, a password manager in the cloud? Um, you don't, we don't want to know your secrets, right? And so a lot of stuff has to be done on the inside the browser on the front end. And um, so we needed a pretty in-depth app for that. And uh, JavaScript without types is, uh, I, I don't think it would have gone well. You could say it. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting is my space. default word when you don't really want to say an opinion. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. Thank you. I'll use that again. <laughs> nice. 
there was um I think it was the first TS conf uh someone did a talk and she said that she talked about like a blockchain error where someone accidentally sent like six million dollars to a, uh, a very long number instead of a very long string. So in JavaScript, of course, it slightly rounded it off. And so someone out there at some point may in the future end up with six million dollars of Bitcoin, maybe if if randomness happens, all because there was no like type definition applied to to make sure it was a string and not a number that was getting rounded. Wow, <laughs> that is exciting. And that's that's uh, six million in twenty seventeen Bitcoin. This it's like sixty million. Oh, wow. <laughs> Probably. Uh... Boy. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, so yeah, that that's really cool, and that's that's one thing that. Um, you know, 1Password has gotten uh, a lot of press recently with their, the upcoming 1Password 8 and the change to JavaScript uh, or the change to, you know, TypeScript and, and more of a web stack for for the native app. Um, and, and that's interesting uh, and all. But one thing that I realized is that, you know, 90% of my interaction as a longtime 1Password user has been through the web extension, which has pretty much been JavaScript all along, I would say. Yeah, so especially since um, uh, com, So web extension has had an interesting history. Um, yeah. Just kind of over time, what, what Apple and what browsers have allowed. Um, but lately, at least for the last several years, it's been yeah basically entirely JavaScript and uh, mostly React-based and um, using TypeScript for that as well. Very cool. And so with that, you also kind of, if I understand correctly, have like a, a shared or like a common library that all instances use, and that is written in Rust? Yeah, so that's something that we started a few years ago. Um, the goal being to have this shared, basically, brain of um, business logic that we could fix bugs in once and have them fixed everywhere. So it's it, it really is like a headless um, one password client and then individual clients can develop their UIs. And you mentioned the, the JavaScript stack. Um, so for the desktop apps, we're building that UI in JavaScript or TypeScript um, with React. Um, and, uh, but then in, on Android and iOS, um, we're building those UIs using, you know, those native um, uh, UI frameworks. So, but on the devs, on the desktop, yeah, that that has been the um, kind of unifier to allow us to have the same experience on each of our platforms, and so that's been it's been a really really great endeavor. And um, the um, you know the the Linux app launched earlier this year. Windows has been and Mac have been in beta for a little bit now, um, and yeah, we've had a lot of fun with it. It's interesting to me how like JSON has kind of become the standard format across all programming languages now. And, um, you know, like JavaScript, even if you don't use JavaScript everywhere, maybe you use TypeScript definitions everywhere, or maybe you leverage them elsewhere. So it's kind of um, almost like because this has become the web's popular programming environment, it, other languages have had to adapt to at least support it or be able to interoper interoperate with it so that you can do what you're describing across all these different languages and platforms that you're using. Yeah, exactly. And that's what we did. We've done. Um, the, uh, the, the FFI between Rust and the um, UI layers is JSON, serialized, obviously. Um, and um, so then the problem became, 
you know, how do we, how do we, uh, also share that API across these different languages and, and platforms. And, um, we ended up inventing a, a little library for ourselves called TypeShare that is a rust crate that will parse your rust, um, types and generate, uh, code in, um, Swift, Kotlin and TypeScript. Um, and so TypeScript, you know, very obviously has allowed that to just kind of us to have a lot more confidence, I guess, in, in what we're doing there, as opposed to being JavaScript and you, you need to do some validations or you need to, you know, just assume what the API is. Um, we've got that, uh, auto generated now. That's really cool. Yeah. That, that's such a cool idea yeah. that, you know, we do something similar with GraphQL kind of being that layer and like a, a GraphQL schema being the, the thing that we generate types based off of for the front end. Uh, but I just love that idea of sharing types between the client and the, the client side and the, the server side, or in your case, like all of the different iterations of it, which is really cool. So yeah. That gives you like a, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say, yeah, in, in our case, like we experimented with a couple different ways because there's JSON schema as well and there's other stuff. Um, but we really wanted the source of truth to be the Rust core because that's mm -hmm. where stuff starts and then it, you know, it filters out to the to the UIs. Um, so that's why we, we had to kind of change things up a little bit. Yeah, I was going to add that I think um, we found there's like a couple variants of JSON that are gaining some traction that I think help a little bit. There's one that's the new line delimited JSON, which I think is actually easier to parse because it guarantees that you have like one object per line. So you're not having to deal with like how the format, it's useful for other languages in particular um, and can speed up serialization and streaming of large uh, data sets. And then I've seen people play around something called JSON 5, which is also kind of interesting. And I don't know if that'll ever take off, but I think it's funny that it's got the version number of five because I don't know where two, three, and four went, but it's pretty funny. They're right there with ECMAScript 4. <laughs> <laughs> right, <Yeah>. right. <laughs> but honestly, as long as any of those have comments support, then I, I fully endorse them. <laughs> Why would you need comments? Said one person years ago. Yes. Not to be named. <laughs> right. <laughs> so. That's awesome. Um, another thing that that I think you you mentioned wanting to do is kind of server or a. Uh, runtime validation of those types. Is that something that you handle within? Yeah. So, yeah. So on the, um, on the rust side, we can generate that, um, on the, um, and then on the server side, the server is written in go, you know, we could, we have looked into a couple of things where we could maybe generate some, um, types for the same way in for the API, um, the server API, um, that hasn't materialized at the moment. So right now what we're, what, I've been looking at, um, and some others on, on the team has been that runtime validation. Uh, and we've been, uh, kind of latching onto this library called IOTS, IO hyphen TS. Um, if you're looking it up on NPM and it, um, not, not written by us, but it, uh, is a, um, kind of a functional approach to runtime type validation. And this is something that's interesting in TypeScript. Um, as 
over the years with TypeScript, it's the, uh, the team has provided more and more strict controls. Um, and most recently with TypeScript 4.4, you've got the uh, um, error, caught, what's it called? Caught errors um, are unknown by default. Hmm. And it's really hard to do stuff with the unknown type. Um, it's just like, especially if it's an object, right? If, if it's a string, you can do, you know, type of thing is string um, and you're good. Uh, but if you want to find, like, if it's an object and you want to get in and, and get a property out, that's that's pretty complicated. And so IOTS really makes that simple. You just, it's very declarative. You just say, you know, t that uh, type of um, an object with a message that's a string. And if it is that thing, then you can use the message property on that object. Um, so it really simplifies that part. Um, but there's a lot of these, like, Historically, there's been a lot of places where you had to use any, um, for example, json.parse. Um, <laughs> I think it's technically the open, close, curly braces type, um, which is similar to any. Maybe it's more permissive. I forget. Um, but it functions as an any. And so in our code, whenever we've done that, we just had to basically type assert. And that gives you nothing, right? So um, the we've been trying to move a little bit more towards actual validating of the of the types that we get and making sure that you know we're working with what we think we're working with um, which is kind of important when you're you're trusting your execution to to your type system one of the first non typescript team typescript shirts i ever saw was from the angular team and it said just put an any on it and they gave these shirts to the TypeScript team, and I think they thought it was fun. And I, if I had received that shirt, I would have been like, wow, we got to improve TypeScript, yeah. which they have. <laughs> but it's kind of this funny thing, like this thing that was meant to ease adoption became kind of like the biggest criticism about TypeScript of like, well, any's are horrible, any's are terrible, but they also help you get stuff done sometimes. It's just you don't want to end up there permanently because then you lose all the benefits of bothering to type things to begin with. Oh but yeah, for sure. It's interesting how that's evolved. Without any, yeah. nobody would ever adopt TypeScript um, to begin with, I don't think. And so, yeah, it helps you get in there, but yeah, kind of addressing that tech debt in a way um, to, to pare that down. And we've, you know, we've had some ESLint rules that help with that, um, with the TypeScript ESLint package and stuff like that. But, um, and that's actually kind of helped us on this way, but we also have a lot of ESLint overrides that we need to get, you know, <laughs> removed. But yeah, <laughs> just just before this call, I was adding a bunch of uh, no or, uh, overrides for the no explicit any. But I have I have justification. I promise. I yeah. <laughs> sure you do, Nick. Sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> no explicit any. We might. I think we might have gotten rid of that one a while ago. But now there's like. We have ESLint rules for implicit any's um, where you can't even use them um, unless you override it or you do some validations or cast it as unknown or whatever. Um, but in any case, there, there there's a lot of um, kind of specific to our use case, I guess. But with I mentioned earlier, a lot of stuff has to happen in the browser because we're decrypting on the client, mm -hmm. right? And decrypted data is another place where you have to deserialize JSON. The, this data is not validated on the server. The server never sees it. Um, so we have clients that have lived for years and years um, 
that have created this data that has been encrypted and stored on the server and it could be anything right <laughs> um so having the um that's that's kind of like one of the next places that we're looking is how do we start um trying to validate that without breaking anything um and um get that into a place where we're a little bit more confident in the stuff that we're dealing with on the client side so that when you decrypt an item that um, someone else has encrypted, for example, like there's a security uh, risk there as well, right? An attacker could encrypt something malicious that um, that would cause the system to behave in a certain way because it thinks it's dealing with something else. And so um, that's where we're kind of really trying to focus and get um, a little bit more confidence there at runtime. So with that, you have like that, that's kind of the use case for runtime type checking is you don't really know what the data is because you're not, it's the client that's decrypting it at all times. Right. Yeah. And okay, that's cool. So it, like having that, that type checking there is helping to make the, the product more secure. Yeah. And it's, it's basically anywhere that you have um, data that you didn't control, right? Mm -hmm. For the most part, we're talking to the server, our server, and you know we could use generated types, or in the case of the Rust clients, generated types from the from the Rust core. Um, but um, whenever you're pulling in something that is coming from somewhere else, or something that you don't control, um, yeah, there's just you, you can't static type that, um, or you can, but you might be wrong. Dylan looked like he was going to say something, so I was pausing. No, I'm I am trying to think of something. I'm like, yeah, we can cut that part. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of like you st we start out with any, and then we got never, and we've got generics. And there's like got to be a good solution in there that is like, hey, don't worry about it right now, but at some point, I'm going to tell you what it should look like, right? And that's kind of, I think, what we all want because we don't want to like over specify things at points in time we don't know we don't want to like block anything from happening because we don't actually know the valid type definition at this point in time but at the point of decryption we then need to know it so it's kind of this like it's an interesting challenge um and i i don't know that like obviously you've had to do some work to get it to where you need it to be so it's cool yeah, yeah a lot of it just thinking about how to fail gracefully um and mm. at one point um uh we there's a specific kind of thing that we were just like well you know if if this fails we don't really know what to do with this data <laughs> and so we're going to display basically corrupted item because something weird happened um and that was more like the result of a like a pen tester um coming in and saying you know if i do this and this and this behind the scenes not actually using your client um then i can cause this part of the app to break and we're like yeah that that makes sense we should we should take care of that <laughs> I mean, it, it's not like you're storing passwords or, oh, yeah, oh, like, yeah. <laughs> you actually actually care about this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's funny. Yeah, this is really cool, really cool practical implementations and, you know, taking TypeScript beyond what, um, you know, the general use case with runtime type validation and uh, kind of the, the isomorphic almost like sharing of types between languages, which is really cool, you know, not just client and server, but different languages completely and being able to interop between all of them. Just a really cool practical application of TypeScript in an app that many are familiar with. Uh, 
and yeah it's very very cool um anything else you want to let us know about about one password or typescript or anything before we let you go or like what feature are you most looking forward to in a future typescript release or Mm, things like that oh that's something i should have thought about ahead of time um (laughs) i mean i i've always thought it would be kind of cool if typescript could could generate some of this stuff um i know that's not it's it's been defined to not be in scope and that's why we've gone and and got a third-party library um but that is kind of a hole here that we that some that you have to solve somewhere um so i guess that's not really a good answer um but if if i guess i could magically wish something into typescript it, it might be native support for runtime validation you would not be alone in that request. That's <laughs> definitely true. I was actually shocked when TypeScript first came out that that was not part of the plan. Because to me, that was like the most obvious, like just like it feels like we still don't really have great solutions to something as simple as like form validation. And it feels like we already know what you want it to do. Why not pass that along to the client? And and that's like the most obvious example of a place where it could fit, uh, you know, solve a need in my opinion. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, cool. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. And Dylan, thanks for joining as well. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Thanks. We're back. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Did you guys enjoy those ads? I hope they didn't cut them out. They probably cut them out. Oh, man. Our ad network is the worst. Um, <laughs> it's just mostly survival pills and or survival food and brain force supplements and all those things. So it's fine if you missed it. I got a new mattress. It was, it was great. <laughs> okay. Seriously, I know you guys can't see this at home. I literally, he sat there and waited until I got the drink of Diet Coke into my mouth before he said it. That, that dead air was him waiting patiently for me to start drinking before he said, I got a new mattress. And then I almost spit it everywhere. So talk about sabotage right here. Yeah. That was really well done. I'm, I'm actually, I applaud that. That's, see, now that was a great joke. You guys are going to hear an interview later, not today, but in another episode where Nick was, Nick was pulling, bringing some jokes. I wasn't having it. This one, that was amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. Now, in the last segment, you asked me, seriously, why Vim? And I tried to give you an honest answer on that. And now I want to ask you, Tori, seriously, why Figma? <laughs> why Figma? So, all right. I, I, I had to preface this a little bit with some background because, so I am a UI designer and I have been doing that since before that was mostly a thing that anyone knew what it was, uh, that where people would call it, you just go, oh, I'm a designer and they would just make whatever assumption they wanted about what you did. Um, that still happens. People still ask me, Hey, you're a designer. What do you think about this couch and this, this, this cushions? <laughs> and what do you think about the colors? I was like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not an interior decorator. Just because I have designer in the title doesn't mean I can do any kind of design there is. Yeah. Um, I just but then I give my answer anyway. colors and and if this layout <laughs> looks right in the paper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fine. Um, but so I, I was doing this way back. I've uh, been going, been doing the UI design for a long, long, long time. Uh, I started SitePen in 2000 when I was 18. Uh, I joined uh, right as we were starting SitePen. And um, I did UI design. And I think... The interesting thing was, uh, so it started with Photoshop, obviously, because it was like the tool. Um, 
And I know that like a lot of developers don't probably appreciate what that's like um, to design with because it's um, kind of awful. Um, Photoshop, right? It's Photoshop is bad to design yeah. with for doing UI layouts. Like it's just not made for that. Um, and it's interesting because you know, you basically have one canvas and that's how this is like back in the day, right? I think they've, mm -hmm. they changed it recently, but I, I don't use it anymore for UI design. So I wouldn't really know, but yeah, like you just open it up, you create a document, you set the, you know, the dimensions of your canvas and then you design stuff. There is no variables, no reusability, no components. There was nothing like that. It was just, you just drew pixels. They weren't even vector. Vectors didn't exist in, in Photoshop either. Nothing was vector. They didn't mm. have them. It was just bitmap editing. Um, even so old school that when I would click text, it was actually interesting. You'd click text and you put, you'd go to your, your thing and you'd hit the text button. It would pop up a modal to type your text into. And then you would hit OK. And then you could choose like, you know, like the stylings. But it didn't have the ability to like put the text on the page where you were doing it. It just like put it wherever you clicked, but it popped a modal to type it in. So you couldn't see it in context until afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going back quite a ways, right? Um, and, and this was just so, for you to do your, your rounded corners, right? Is that primarily what was happening? <laughs> yeah, actually, <laughs> annoyingly enough, rounded corners were quite cool to do um, in Photoshop. <laughs> actually, also just as annoying to do in Photoshop as they were in CSS. Okay, so back okay. then, uh, we didn't have border properties. As you know, we didn't have border radius. You couldn't do that. So you'd have to use images. And then uh, did you know that ping colors are not the same as uh, normal web hex colors? Yeah, that's what? fun. Um, also, the transparent backgrounds didn't work in IE6 unless you used an HTC filter hack or something like that. So <laughs> it, was, it was a nightmare of epic proportions to do anything not square. Um, so I used Photoshop for a long time, and it got to the point where I was designing stuff, but you'd have multiple files open because every screen needed its own Photoshop file. Now imagine that every time that you change something in the previous screen, now you've got to go and propagate that back through every design you have, right? It was awful. It's absolutely dreadful. So eventually they did come up with a concept of components, but it wasn't really well done. Um, it was very much a hack. Um, and so I started looking at a tool called Fireworks. Uh, which is really cool um, because it actually understood that it was made much more based on the concepts that you see in web where you'd have multiple pages um, and then a page could have um, like you create these objects and then in there you could create these components that had multiple frames which were states um, so it's actually like really well thought out like they had they had pages and states, which was huge. So I could design something, create a component, it would have states. And then when I use that component, I could change what state I wanted in to show on my design. So suddenly I could do this all in one program. I think I and like 12 other people use fireworks. Like nobody used this. It was not the industry standard. Customers hated me because I would give them fireworks files and they wanted Photoshop files. And I was like, well, I don't use Photoshop. So that's just mm. something you got to deal with. Like, and neither should you, by the way, neither should you. Uh, so I was one of the last holdouts with fireworks. Like I was using it when it was no longer supported. It had to be run through Rosetta because it was all PowerPC and then Adobe <laughs> had stopped. So they had got it from Macromedia. And then when they acquired Macromedia, they, they started using, they, they, you know, called it fireworks still. And like they packaged it as part of their creative suite. And then, you know, it was all PPC code, PowerPC. And then they switched to Intel and they didn't even, I don't think they recompiled it. It was bad. And the retina screens came out and they didn't update it. So everything is just blurry, but I still used it because it was the best tool for the job. Um, when it finally kind of stopped working, Sketch came out and Sketch was really revolutionary in okay. that uh, it was Mac only um, and it still is. But, you know, at least it was like it was trying to do it, it was kind of funny because Adobe killed this product right when this kind of revolution took place that people would want to do screen design differently. Um, 
So it's kind of funny that Sketch comes along and it basically replaces Photoshop and fireworks for people. And it's like, well, if fireworks had just stuck around, if they could have just done something with it. And then immediately, well, not immediately, but two years later, Adobe starts XD, like their their Adobe XD, which is their screen design tool, which is just so frustrating because it's like, hey, you had the screen design tool for so long and you ignored it. And then suddenly, uh, oh, cool thing about uh, fireworks too. Yeah, that's all I'm answering. I'm just talking about why I use fireworks, not why I'm using Figma, but I'm getting there. <laughs> the interesting thing though about uh, fireworks was that uh, it used JavaScript for like plugins and stuff. So if you could write JavaScript, you could write mm. plugins to do all kinds of cool stuff. So what kind um, of and stuff? it could do like... HTML, uh, like interactivity. So uh, you could link between pages and stuff and you could do different things, but you could create uh, things like if you wanted to fill a table full of text in different texts, right? You had a CSV file and then you mocked up a table, right? This is Mocking up a table in design tools is really hard, actually. It's one of the more difficult and annoying things because as soon as you change like the width of something, it doesn't just auto-update. You have to go change the width of all those cells again, right? Mm. At least this is what you used to have to do. Um, you still kind of have some hacks and workarounds, but no one has like just insert table tool. Like it doesn't work that way. Um, I wish they did. But um, so yeah, you could you could generate a table, like you could get a CSV file and then write code that would generate a table because you could draw with the with the uh, JavaScript API. You could draw stuff. I, I believe you could draw things with it. Nice. Um, so you could you could basically like have it loop through and just generate a table and and you could, you know, do some smart things like calculate like what the width of the item was in the cell to know how wide all of them should be. Um, anyway, yeah, you do a lot of cool stuff with it. Um, so I love that tool. I think it was really ahead of its time and I desperately was searching for something, anything. And I tried tons of different stuff, uh, tons of different tools that were out there. Uh, and then Sketch came out and I was like, okay, this is it. This is the tool. Um, and then not too long after, like Sketch, you know, had some rough parts. Um, I think it grew really quickly. Um, and not, none of this is a despair of Sketch. I think it's a, it's a good tool. Um, but it still relied on, you know, you're saving files locally right? Like it's always just local files. Um, and if you want to share that file with somebody, you have to look, put it on Dropbox or, you know, in, in Google Drive or something. And then they open it. But now if you're open it and they open it, then there's a conflict, right? So it's like, so, you'd have to be like, okay, I'm out of the file. Yeah. I, just from the other side of this, uh, I never mm -hmm. really, well, wait, this, this is Sketch, right? With Sketch, mm -hmm. I, I actually did buy a license to it when it was still like not a subscription because yeah. I thought for some reason I was like, I saw people, you know, posting and, and articles about how, you know, you design with it. And then I got it and I had no idea what to do with it, uh, which is yeah. hilarious. Um, and I still don't, but, um, <laughs> is from the other side of this, like working with, uh, designers who used sketch, is this where a tool like Zeppelin comes in to like yep. help share those? Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. I'm yeah. just trying to provide context. Yeah. No, absolutely. That was the other thing is that it was cool working by yourself. Um, but uh, working with a team was difficult uh, because you, again, have this problem where you have libraries, like you create these components. So I, I guess I should like just say that what I think a lot of people don't really understand about the design process is from a development point of view is that it's a lot like the development process. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our initial thing is we'll create, a, you know, like we can we want to create styles and we want to create our grids. 
um, and we save them as like almost like variables. So it wasn't really possible before, but Sketch does this and now Figma does this as well, right? Like like these things were kind of revolutionary in that if you have a text, you know, if you if you have some text, you could call this, you, you, you create your text and you just like say, okay, this is a, I'm gonna take the style from this and call it like heading one, you know? And I wanna take the color value and call it like text primary or something like that, right? So you wanna, you wanna really like, you want to abstract these things out so that you can do things like have a light mode and a dark mode and be able to switch between them and different things like that. And also if you update the size of text in a table, like the table heading text changes, you could just update that in one spot and it propagates to everywhere you use that table. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's very much like if you're not, like you're not just, you don't just, you know, start typing stuff in, like you, you create these components and then you use them to build these um, user interfaces. So we, we create a component for say a text input or a drop down or a title bar or something. And then you use that component elsewhere. And when you want to modify that component, like you can change the text in the component, like you can override the text. Um, you do cool stuff like that, uh, override the icons. Um, but basically, uh, any other changes you haven't overridden. So this is in Figma. Any changes you haven't overridden when you go in, you go back into Figma and you, uh, you go back into the, so we create like to back up again, we create like a library and this library gets um, shared across files. Like you can, for any file, you can say, um, I want to use this library. And then when you use that library, all of the things that you've set, all the text sizes, all the shadows, um, all of the grids and all of the, um, like the components that you created are all then into your file and you can drag them in, in and use them and you can use the text styles so that when you're mocking up a page, you have consistent text um, and consistent everything, consistent colors across your, your project. So sometimes like if you go back now to your library um, and you change the color of something, you hit publish and you put in your commands, just like you would do in like Git, right? Like you're like, hey, I want to publish this, these changes. And you put in um, like your comment, like, okay, you know, I changed the color of this. That's, that's your comment, right? And mm -hmm. then when you go back to your file, it pops up a thing going, hey, this, your library has been updated. Do you want to update? Now you could say no, like you can just say, no, I don't want to update right now. Especially if like I'm working on a customer deliverable, I don't know what someone changed and I don't want it to mess up my design. Right. So I'm just going to say, I'm making no art for right now. Um, but yeah, you hit update and it updates every instance uh, of that component. So now instead of being, you know, like a, a one color, it's a different color, it's a different font, it's a different everything. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really handy to be able to go back and, you know, it's, it's like creating components in JavaScript. It's like, you're creating these com components, you're creating basically style sheets and then in your you know in your library you have all this stuff and then you go into your file and you actually design with it right and so it's really handy uh, to be able to do that um so to your question about like so why figma so you know mm -hmm. sketch has a lot of this stuff figma is as i kind of mentioned it's it's the collaboration aspect of it's huge um so Figma is online. It's an electron app. It runs in the browser. So if you're not even like you can install the desktop version, which is just a wrapped version of the, the app. Um, but yeah, you can just like open it in your browser and it's the full thing is running in your browser and it's all in, it's all stored in the cloud. Like I don't save the files locally. They're just, I just create a project. I create a file and it's just there and it's there for everyone on my team that I invite. And the really cool thing is you can design with people at the same time. So that's huge. So at Whoa. first it was kind of a daunting because you would see someone in your file and you immediately get paralysis like they're watching me design. But really they're just designing stuff too. 
So, uh, you know, they'll just, they'll just, you'll see them actually moving. So you'll see their cursor and you see their name and you see them moving stuff around and doing stuff, um, which is really cool because, you know, you can, you can collaborate in the same file with people. Uh, there's no syncing issues. There's no back and forth, you know, like, oh, I opened this and changed this, but then you opened it. So it didn't save, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just gone. Like it, it just handles it perfectly. Mm-hmm. And then that also goes to the developers. I can, the developers can go into the file and, you know, look at, look at that and see that, okay, this component I'm using, you know, I'm using text light, you know, so you can, you can call the, you call your text and you call your things different uh, variable names basically. And you can, if you really want to get clever, you can use the same naming scheme as the code. Um, And there are some tools out there that'll help you that will like sync the tokens, the design tokens between code and like it'll spit out to a JSON file. Um, and then the code can then in the build process, use those and, and redo the variables. So you can actually basically have Figma as a source of truth for the, the, the styling, the text colors, like all the colors and different things, mm-hmm. um, you know, for your scheme. And then someone can pull that in and the developer knows, okay, well, this is this thing. Like, you know, he knows exactly, you know, I'm, I say he, cause I'm literally working with someone right now. And then, you know, he, he knows exactly what color it is that, that I'm using, what the, what the class is for the, for the font, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's really handy. Um, and then I guess the other, the other part of that too, is then also your stakeholders, they can just get a link and they can get a view only view of, of what you're working on. And so while you're talking to them, you could literally be changing stuff and show them while they're talking to you. Like I want it this way and you can just change it for them. And they're, you know, thousands of miles away. And then mm-hmm. yeah, here they are watching you make these changes real time. Um, and so that's really nice that you just use this one tool. You don't need tools like Zeppelin and things like that to export or to view the distance between things. Um, you know, it just is what it is. Um, yeah. It's really, really fascinating, really good technology. So I have some questions. As a, I approach this from a, like right now I have a Figma open uh, with mm-hmm. read-only access because that's all I'm trusted with. And yes. um, you can for a good touch. Yeah, good reason. I don't want to touch and accidentally move things yeah. around. That would be terrible. Um, you don't get the editing mode. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do you, so like, do you see that as a big, um, a big benefit of tools like these is like that, that ability to, to communicate like specific thoughts. And I'm, I'm thinking like, you know, how much do you rely on? Like, go look at the Figma to find out exactly how much padding I'm trying to put between these, these two items and things like that. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing because there's a couple of new things that came out recently with Figma that um, have really helped this. So in design, normally like we'll just set up a grid, right? Or cut up a grid system. Mm-hmm. And then we have, we're very particular about things like padding between things, right? Now, padding between elements inside of like a bigger element, which is really cool is that um, what I didn't mention was that you can create, you can actually compose larger components like atomic design style. You can have like a button be part of another component. So like your button component is nested inside of this dialogue component, which is mm. literally like the dialogue base is like a, a rectangle that you've styled a certain way with a certain shadow. And then the footer is, you know, the, 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 the styling for the buttons and that's a component. And then the header with the close buttons, a, you know, a component, and then you put them all together and you make that a component. So you get these nested components so you can reuse stuff really easily. Um, and then if you change something on that header of the dialogue where you like, where it says what the dialogue title is, um, it'll change everywhere you use in that component. So you can have different nice. types of dialogues all using that same thing. Um, but yeah, so some, some things came out though, is that, um, 
I think it's really fun to use grids and uh, to say, okay, what's well, a 12 grid layout or six grids or whatever, like six, six column layout. Um, and the thing though, is that when you're doing like responsive design, you kind of like set your breakpoints, you set your grids and you design to that. Uh, but some things aren't like that in the real world. Um, like flex, that's why we have Flexbox, right? Because some things you just want to say, look, there's three things here and they take up however much space they take up. They take up all of it or they take up just as much as they need. I don't care. You know, like I, I care, like this is how it works. Yeah. So, um, in Figma, they introduced a thing called auto layout. Um, and this is really cool because it's actually based off of Flexbox concepts. So you can take oh, cool. a couple of uh, things and you say auto layout. Uh, so you select a few things, you say auto layout. And then you can say each thing inside of that auto layout, like imagine a row, okay? And imagine like a, like a row with then you have like a few things that are a title and a label, like a, a label and a value under it, like three or four things. Now they stretch, now initially they're just going to sit next to each other exactly how you had it when you set them to auto layout. But then you could do things like you could select one of them and say fill container. And it will act just like in Flexbox when you tell something to grow as long as it needs, like to fill the rest of the space, right? So you have three smaller things and then one that's bigger. Um, and then, you know, you tell another one to fill container and it'll do the same thing like in Flexbox where it'll fill as much space as it can while the other one takes 50%, 50%, but it's 50% minus the amount of the other boxes, right? So it's really cool because you can do stuff like that. And then you can do stuff like another great thing with auto layout is if I have a table, right? A table and I'm putting rows of that table. Well, there's other stuff underneath that, right? But because it's not in like HTML, when you add something to the table, the table gets bigger, but the thing under it doesn't move. It just sits there, right? So then it overlaps, right? And then mm -hmm. you have to move everything. So as you change the amount of stuff on the table, everything moves. But if you put that into an auto layout, um, when you adjust the table by adding or removing things, the thing underneath it gets pushed and pulled up too, because it's, it's also part of this layout group. So it's really actually a lot more like code now, because you can say, um, you know, I'm very specific about the padding between these items, but also in this case, just flex, like it, mm -hmm. it works just like Flexbox. You can just tell the developer, like, look, this is an auto layout. It's Flexbox. It just does it this way. And it just makes sense. And then when you're creating these responsive designs, you can literally grab it and just move it down to a breakpoint. And things will reflow based on how you laid out. You can pin things to the corners um, so that when you resize, like if you have a, imagine a, a text on the left and then on the right, an icon, right? Now I want to make this smaller, right? Because it's going to a smaller screen. Normally, like in the past, that would really be a problem because you'd have to go move that icon over every time, right? And then fix the padding, right? Mm -hmm. Well, with like auto layout, number one, with auto layout, you can actually set the padding of a thing and you can actually type in a numerical padding value. So I can nice. say this auto layout group is, so like imagine you have a modal, but the modal's contents have a 16 pixel um, padding. So in, when you make the auto layout, you just say the auto layout has 16 pixel padding and you could change the padding for each side, right? But like mm -hmm. just say it has 16 pixels all the way. Now, everything I put into it, I tell it to fill the width, and it fills the width of the auto layout group, and it's padded. So I don't have to set the padding every time. And it might not seem like a big deal, but do you know how much time we spend moving things over a couple <laughs> pixels because it's just off? It's, yeah. you know, it's just off. And so, yeah, you can resize things, and it keeps that padding. It keeps things pinned. You can keep things pinned left and right, top and bottom centered. <laughs> so really, you know, this is in Sketch 2. Uh, you can do similar stuff. But another thing came out uh, is called Variance. Um, and so a variant, now think of a button, you have a one button and then it has various states though, right? It has, uh, you know, it's, it has a, it's enabled, it's disabled. Uh, it has all these different properties. And when you really think about a button, it can get really deep, right? So you can go like, think about this, like the state of it is, uh, it's enabled, it's disabled, it's hovered, it's pressed. Um, 
We'll just go with those four. Okay. Okay. Now think about this. You have another axis of properties. Um, what's the emphasis? Is it an outline button? Is it a filled button? Is it a ghost button? Is it a text button? So those are all the same component, but there's a different property to them, right? So it's mm-hmm. this kind of button. So it's not actually that button. Is it an icon button? Does it have an icon on the left, an icon on the right? So you have a, another property, right? So now for each one of those, each one of those permutations, you think of a single button, there can be hundreds of buttons that you would have to mock up, right? So that's annoying. Um, and also switching between them, right? Because you don't want to have a thousand buttons you need to go look at. So, uh, which is what we used to do. We'd go find the button labeled the thing that we wanted, um, which was annoying. Um, but that's how we had to do it. But now with variants, I will simply, I still have to make the states and I still have to do all that. But then I say combine them as a variant. And what happens is, is that in my library, there becomes one symbol called button. And I just drag the button out to use it. And then on the right side, I, I just set the properties. So if it's a Boolean true or false, it's as a toggle that you can click on and off and it'll just change the, like, like if I say has icon, you know, yes or no. I can also say like right icon or left icon. I can, ch- you know, and I can change between all those different things and it changes in the design. Um, so which it, is it really just changes, nice. changes in the variant, just the, like the difference between like whatever it's a variant of. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so when you go to actually use them, you're like, well, I need a button, but which button do I need? Well, here I need the high emphasis, like primary action button. And then here I need to show that in a disabled state. But next to it, I need to have a cancel button, which I want to be a, be a text button. Mm-hmm. So you use the same button component, but you just set. It's kind of like when you're doing code and doing code. <laughs> I think it's a drug. Um, when, you're, <laughs> when you're coding things, right, you will maybe like you think about React, you have a button, but you, you give it these props. You say it's, you know, these are the properties of this button. It's the same thing. Like you're, you're defining these properties. And then when you go to use it, you're implementing it with the properties that you want by mm-hmm. toggling them on and off, setting it in the um, sidebar, all the things that you want. And you can change the text of it. And then the really cool thing is if I change the text of the button to say whatever I want to say, and then I changed the variant to maybe I didn't want primary. Now I want secondary or outlined or whatever. Um, it will keep the text because I overrode that. And so if I go to the primary button, I change the color and I go back and I update. It doesn't change the text. It just changes the color. Like mm. it, it knows that it's intelligent. And then what's changed, Yeah, it'll only change the things that have changed. So it's really, really it speeds up a lot of what you, what you do. Yeah. Um, and then yesterday, the coolest feature is interactive components. So... Here's the thing, <laughs> buttons and things like checkboxes and um, you know toggles, if you want to show it in a prototype, right, you want to be able to click that button or click that toggle. Now imagine you have a bunch of different things that you could toggle on and off. Um, you would basically have to make a screen for each, like you would, you have the two states you've already created as a variant, right? So you already mm-hmm. know it's like there's, there's an on and an off, but you would have to, if you want to show it in the UI itself, you'd have to like create another copy of the entire page and then have that button or that toggle switch to on. And then you would, you could, so you can prototype inside of Figma as well. I didn't mention that you can, you can prototype, you can connect things together. So when you click it, it'll go to the other screen that you showed. Hmm. But the thing was, let's say I want to show what looks like when you toggle on uh, something, right? I want to show that I would have to actually create the entire screen, duplicate it, and then click the toggle, prototype it, and move the arrow, like what it's connecting to, over to the entire screen there just to show that animation, right? But now they have a thing called interactive components where when I'm making the component, I can say that when you click it, it will it'll change to that other, sh- to that other state, but on the component level. 
So now when I use that component, I don't have to wire anything up. Anytime I click it, it'll, it'll do that. And you can do the same for hover states, button hovers, all that stuff, all the states can be done when you create the component. You can say this component, when you hover, it does this, when you do that. And then when you ever use that component, you never have to wire that up. So every time you go to show a prototype, it looks and feels more real because the components you're using interact in a way that is more real. Oh, so that's cool. It's, and that just came out like literally yesterday from when I'm recording this. Um, and I've yet to play around with it, but it's been in beta for a while. Um, so, nice. you know, it's really, really cool. Um, and those things speed things up and it makes it feel more realistic. And the biggest thing is when you create a design, a lot of times the, until you actually hold it in your hand, like if you're doing mobile design or you're doing screen design, until you really get it into your hands in a real like prototype type way, it, you can do some bad design and not realize because to you it makes sense. Then you go to actually use it and you're like, boy, that interaction kind of sucks. Now that, mm -hmm. I'm, now that I'm using it, this is not fun. This is awful. Um, so the quicker you can get to design to <laughs> prototype and then hand it off to developers, you know, the, the, just being able to tell that story and hand it off to people and they can click it and they can see what your intent was. And yeah, it's just really cool. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's so that's why that's why Figma and not the other tools. Um, things like Webflow, um, I tried to use that before, but it's just not the same thing because while it is cool because you're closer to the HTML, uh, it's not as it's it, it's more limiting because you have to like compose these components and use the components that exist and you can't easily move them around as well because they, you know, are doing like HTML layouts. And I don't always want that. I want to kind of move stuff around. And then once I'm at a point at which I'm like, yeah, this is good. I want to make the layout. You know, I want to do yeah. the auto layout. But before that, you're just moving stuff around and you're just kind of mocking it up. And then you're like, yeah, this is good. Now I'm going to commit to it, you know. So yeah, there's a lot of different tools out there. But this one, I think that's this is the reasons I use it. I'm glad you brought that up about Webflow and all of that, because I heard that Webflow is reality, whereas Figma is a delusion. And I'm glad that we, we set that record straight. Yes. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Um, and then you have things like Framer, which are doing some really cool stuff. But yeah, just, I was going to ask about Framer. Harder. Yeah. Yeah. So as a designer, it's harder for me to get into it because creating a component. So it's really cool is that Framer is really great for prototyping. You do really rich stuff. Yep. Um, and the really cool thing about just, Framer is that you can share the source code for your components and actually right. render them right inside. So you're not doing an approximation anymore. You're doing the real component. Like it mm -hmm. is the component in which mm -hmm. you're, you're utilizing it in. Um, I think there's some barriers to entry that hopefully, like I every time there's a new release. And the, the, okay, the other thing is they can't get what they're doing right, like straight. They keep oh, yeah. changing directions. So initially it was this coffee script thing. Um, and then they switched that to being this TypeScript thing. Uh, and it was both downloadable apps. And then they decided to move it to the web. Um, and then they gave you a downloadable app that wrapped the web. But then they got did away with that. Uh, and then I think they brought it back. But it was kind of a mess going through all those transitions because it just felt like they didn't know what they wanted to really do. Mm -hmm. um, but I like the concept. But I've... I've yet to just have the ease of the, the barrier to entry is kind of like a uh, Vim, right? Like I'm sure yeah. that like once you get really good at it, it's really great, but it does feel at times limiting because it's almost like, yeah, if you have all the components and you have everything that you want already created and you can just, you know, just move them around the screen and do the things. Yeah. It might be like really great if you know kind of more what you're trying to do, but in that brainstorming phase, you really want to be more fluid and be able to move stuff around easier and do things. But once you start to really prototype something, you better be pretty clear about what you're trying to prototype. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just, that's generally a Figma too, but it definitely 
it's definitely weird because if you do things like form inputs, right? I, I guess like, like I guess that's where I'm going with it, is that the more real you get, the closer to real you get, the more your expectations change, right? So I use Axure or Azure, Axure. I don't know how you say it. A-X-U-R-E. Uh, I've used that before to do some prototyping. And it's cool because it just generates HTML. Uh, and it's that's really fun. Um, so when you want to do like forms and things like that, like one of the things that sucks about using Figma is like, you're not creating form fields, you're creating boxes that you say are a form field, right? But you can't type into them. Um, and so you might not notice that, you know, so you start typing long text and this whole thing breaks down, right? And you might not notice that now until it gets into development because you just didn't have the chance to actually type, right? You just, you're approximating it. So it's cool with like Axure and with Framer is that you can actually type into these fields. But then you start to get into different logic things where it's like, well, if I toggle this on, I want to show all this stuff. But if mm -hmm. I toggle it off, I want a different show this different stuff. Okay. But now what happens when I validate it? So now you have to write code to say that when you are done entering something, you need to validate that, right? So now you have to like, as a designer, your expectation now has changed that it's like, oh, well, actually now I need to write code to say, to validate these things. And Axure has a really cool way of doing it. Like their interactions are pretty straightforward. And I think, I haven't looked at Framer recently. It's been about a few months. Mm -hmm. But basically the way you do it is like, you'd have to like write some code to do some validation work. Mm -hmm. um, and that's daunting, right? Like I know how to do it, but I'm also going, I don't have the time for this. Like I'm trying to put together this stuff. And then when you get to the end, you go, oh yeah, that's not what I wanted. Okay, well, I feel like I just wasted a ton of time, right? Like, so I think it's a great tool. I think it has promise if they can just, simplify some more things which they've been trying to do um you know i give them props what they're doing is a great idea and so unlike some people i'm not actually in a cult of figma because <laughs> if figma lets me down and there's another tool i'm out you know like it, it's it's not like i'm in love with the tool to me the tool is just part of the deliverable you know it's like to me i'm <laughs> i'm less concerned about the tooling but if there is a better tool i want to use it you know so yeah, yeah it's 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 really fun um and yeah super fun to be clear, I don't think there's a better tool than Vim for editing. Oh, no. But, yeah, I know that. I mean, it's the one true tool. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, I have a few questions about, about Figma. Um, yeah. Again, coming from, like, maybe a developer side and, like, how I see it or how I interact with it. Um, do you, as the designer, have influence over the, like, in the inspector, it shows, like, CSS that's generated. Do you have influence over that? Or is that really just kind of, like, baked based on like the shapes that you're drawing yeah no it's it's a it's baked based on the the shapes you're drawing um okay. and, and the things that you're doing so yeah it, it's just all based on that should you should i as a developer consider that to be like the the source of truth for what those you know like padding values and colors and things like that should be yeah, so I think that in general, like in a in a good process, if if you had the process right, the way you you know, it's a really it's a conversation between design and development, right? To really mm -hmm. decide what the source truth is and how to how to inspect it, yeah. um, and, and what the expectations are. Um, a lot of times, like when we create um, when we create our components, we might use spacer um, little images that we create. Uh, just so that you can visualize certain paddings without having to actually inspect and find out what the padding is, you know, like we would just do it and you go, okay, that's a 16. Oh, that's 18. Or, you know, that's 16. That's eight. That's 32. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just make it easier. So you just visually reference it when you create the component itself. And then hopefully when you're creating the components, once they're created, then putting together the screens themselves is a lot easier because you don't have to reference the component. You just know that that component is the component and mm -hmm. you've created that and I've created it. And now we're just slapping it together into functionality. So 
Um, but yeah, I don't look at the CSS thing ever because I don't think it's valuable because once you've, that's what I, I mean, it's valuable to an extent. <laughs> I mean, it's valuable to, to an extent, like if you want the color, but you see, that's what I'm saying about like having, using the color and not being the hex value, like just mm-hmm. using it as a variable, like you're using oh, a style. So right. I say that this is, and I have written this thing where, you know, I use, uh, I generate, I, so it's. It also their plugin system uses TypeScript. So it's really cool because oh, cool. Um, I wrote a plugin that generates a color scheme based on your your uh, base color. Like you create a base color and then it creates a light and a dark theme based on that color. Nice. Um, which is really cool. Um, and I based it on some other, you know, generating generating algorithms out there but you know i wrapped in this thing and then it it creates it and creates the styles for me in figma so i just like put in my my raw color and it spits out all the the range of colors um and so i would use those colors and so you'd never have to like once you use those colors and create them like you don't need to reference the css anymore you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like it's it's because you're like i the color is that value so i'm just gonna say it's this color um you know like css variables kind of thing so yeah like I, i generally don't think of too much about that CSS inspector. I guess like maybe if you're like, oh, is that a one pixel border? But I think you can pretty much suss that out. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I what I look at the most is like, and it's I do a lot of translation too in my my head or or going in like looking up a reference like you know oh it's using that color and so I'll go search for that color in like our theme file or whatever uh, or right. like oh that's using you know, 16 pixels of padding. Well, I know that that is like our, our base padding is eight. So that's just two or whatever. Yeah. It's two times our base. Um, and just kind of, you know, do that simple math that I'm fully capable of doing. Um, (laughs) but the, the other question I had and, and correct me if I'm wrong or, or forgive me for my lack of, of, uh, knowledge around this piece, but so Figma seems like a great tool for like, you know, laying out and, and putting together, you know, in, in, I guess I'm looking at it specifically for like apps or pages. Like you might design like an yeah. iPhone app or like a, a web app in Figma and like doing all of the layout. But would you also use this tool for like asset generation? Maybe like icons or yeah, uh, things like that. Like, could you do all of that in here as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have icon libraries that... I mean, some of them were probably created in Illustrator at some point and then imported, like they import the SVG. So yep. uh, it's very good at reading the SVG. And um, But yeah, I mean, it's even down to the point where like when we're creating components, we have a component that's called icon component. And then it's sized to the various sizes that we use icons at. So it's mm-hmm. always consistent. And then inside that component, we have the actual icon. And then you you click and you change that icon to whichever icon you want. But yeah, you can, like there's vector drawing tools and you can absolutely create and you know icons down to the pixel level um, using the vector tools there. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. So th- so then like one one question that I was just thinking of is like, you know, let's say you did that, you created some custom, I don't know, some custom button icon or something. <laughs> I don't know, a pencil icon. Yeah. Um, sure. You create that in Figma and it exists in there, and then me as like a developer going in to implement this, would you? Would I like? export that from figma to get like an svg or something but then like i'd I'd put that in my in the code right and check it in as like an svg file probably or something like that then what becomes the source of truth is it is figma always the source of truth in your mind or is yeah in my mind figma is the source of truthiness 
Um, mm-hmm. And that's more of a philosophical view of things is that um, to me, pixel perfection, like to me, just like code, uh, to me, like draw, like creating screens philosophically is like, this is just a product and this is a process and then it, I output these things and then you're going to go implement it and you're trying to get it as close as you can based on your limitations, right? And based on different screen sizes and different things and different ways things render, like, you know, some fonts just render differently on different devices. And so to me, the source of truth is a really interesting topic that's kind of its own topic. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that, um, you know, if you're, once it's an SVG, so normally the way I would do it is we would just take an icon set and we would just use that icon set. And so we're utilizing the SVGs from that. So if we're using font awesome or we're using, you know, material design or whatever one we're using, um, you know, we just say, this is that icon and you then pull it in the way you would pull it in. So you probably wouldn't even export it from our thing. But, you know, there are things where we create a website and we create a vector graphic, we create this whole imagery um, and then it needs to go into the website right so mm-hmm. that's a that's an image and I just click it and I hit you know like export and I can set actually multiple export the targets I can set it to be um, like a 1x JPEG a 2x ping a 3x SVG whatever like I can I can control all that so then you just press one button and it exports all those assets for you um, so that's really nice too and then yeah as a developer you can just go on click on it and hit export and get it yourself if I somehow forgot to give it to you or something you know or you wanted to get it in a different format or you know something like that you can you can export it yourself which is really nice nice cool yeah that's that's kind of what I was curious about but I, I like that approach better of just both of figma and the code being consumers of something else like exporting it or, or having it be its own entity and, and pulling it and I like that yeah, cool for sure um, there was one other question I had and it was, um, if you could change one thing about Figma, what would it be? Ooh, that's a tricky question. I didn't prepare you for this. I'm sorry. It's perfect. <laughs> no. Um, it's like, there's Vin, a lot man. of, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of little things, um, that I would love to see, but that all in all, you know, it's just not a big thing. I think the biggest thing would probably be um it'd be nice to have a better way to do responsive design in it um and which they're trying to tackle with variants and really like you can do things like if you think about a variant on a button level is one thing Mm -hmm. now think about it at a more uh think about like a the atomic design sense and you have like a this this larger um component like a toolbar now on on a desktop, like a desktop size screen, which I'm trying not to say desktop and mobile because I don't think that's a valuable way to talk about viewports. Mm-hmm. But if you have like a large, you know, in, in certain viewports, you're going to have it at the top. But then when you get down to smaller ones, you want a row of buttons at the bottom, right? Like a row of tabs at the bottom, right? Like a, like a toolbar at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, that can be a variant. Like you can just say that the toolbar, that's the variant. And you just say like this, you know, that you can, the variant property can be size and you just say small. And then it, just changes into that one so then you just drag it down but it would be really nice if you could you know somehow make that more of a seamless thing where i could actually drag and once it reaches a certain size then it would change you know Mm -hmm. like i don't don't know exactly how that would work that's a really hard problem to solve um but yeah i think that that that's and maybe logic like logic would be nice too um Mm. like you have interactive components that's cool um but they really in and of themselves only interact with themselves. Like if I, if I toggle something, 
I would want it to kick off an action to do something else. And I don't want to necessarily make another screen to show that state. Like it'd be really great if that component could be interactive and talk to this other component so that when I click this, this other component gets the signal. So Axure works that way. Um, you can send, you can like broadcast events that happen and then other components listen for that event. And then when they get that event, they do something. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be really, I would love to have that in Figma. That would be so awesome. Um, yeah. cause it would just feel more real and you'd have to create less screens. Like it's all about not duplicating. You don't want to duplicate code. Like, yeah, duplicating screens. We do that all the time. You just duplicate the screen and modify the one little thing you needed to make that state change happen. Yeah. And it's like, I don't want to do this. Like I just want it to be, <laughs> um, but I guess like, you know, one more thing I would love is, uh, maybe to be able to consume a, um, and I, I know some people have worked on stuff like this, but to be able to consume a, uh, like a like a widget from like a component from say react or like a react component or an angular component and then um generate like what that looks like in in figma like taking all those properties and drawing the things out and making them so mm -hmm. that i could take a component that exists from a library and not have to create it manually you know like to just be able to just take it and it just does it um would be super awesome but again that's a super hard problem to solve so oh, yeah. um yeah, and then you could keep them in sync, right? You could you could have a plugin that you'd have something that runs every night and just like, you know, grabs the latest and redoes your components and that'd be super sweet. So Yeah. Yeah. I think those things would be awesome. Nice. All right. Final question, and then I'll open it up for anything that you uh want to mention is uh I kinda I feel like I talked about the extent of my Figma usage and knowledge mm -hmm. in terms of like I, I go in there, I look a lot at the CSS and kind of do comparisons to you know, mapping that to the code colors or padding values, things like that. But then also just to give me like a general knowledge of the layout that I, that I should, I should be shooting for. Mm -hmm. uh, is there anything that you wish me and other developers would know uh, about that would make like working together through a, a tool like this uh, better? Um, yeah. So I think one of the things is, uh, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but when you're in Figma, if you have two objects and then you hit um, the option button and then you mouse, like you click on one, you hit option and go to something else, it'll tell you uh -huh. the distance between them. Uh, so that's super easy to be able to say, like, what's the distance between this to this? So that's how you get your padding values because you could just like click on the box and then click on the other thing to figure out what the padding is of that. Um, and so if you created the component properly, uh, you should be able to see that, you know, it's got eight pixel padding or whatever. Um, so that's a really handy thing. Um, and I think really getting, if Whoa. the developers thought more about working with designers as if it was, um, like as if it was code, um, like if you thought about it more in that concept uh, and that it wasn't just this black box. Like I think a lot of the is historically we look at things as like a black box of like well the designer gave me a thing and i'm just going to go implement this but if you really understood the that we're doing the same things you're doing we're just doing it in a different medium yeah uh, we're creating the same types of things you're creating we're creating these widgets we're creating all these things and so if we can kind of create the exact same thing but in code then we can have a much easier time implementing it because you know, when we make a change to something, we're making a change to our core component also, you know, so mm -hmm. if I'm adding something to a component, you're like, well, does everything just change? It's like, well, you know, I had to change my components too. And you just change your components to do this. And, you know, we should be able to stay in sync. You know, I think that that's, 
you know, we're not just willy nilly throwing stuff around. Like we're having to structure components properly. And I say that like, hopefully your designer is doing that too. Like yeah. I've seen bad component design and <laughs> I think component design is an art um, and a science. Like there's a lot to it. So hopefully uh, they're doing the right thing too. But yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a great answer. Cool. Well, anything else cool. you want to tell us about Figma or about No, I think my segment's taken much more time. We've done an entire <laughs> episode now on, on basically just on Figma. And I said initially... Yeah. So everyone knows, like I basically just told Nick, I was like, oh, it's just like a 15 minutes, you know, we should do a 15 minute <laughs> segment here for our, before the interviews. And then here I am like 45 minutes in. So this is going to be a little longer of an episode than I had anticipated. But no, I, I think, uh, you know, just it's a great tool and it just keeps growing. Uh, they're just doing a lot of great stuff. Um, I don't get paid to say this. Like I pay to use it. Um, so, you know, just I, I think I think it, everyone, if you're a developer, maybe like give it a look and just look around at it more like the developer side too of it, like, like mm -hmm. the plugin creation and stuff like that. Like there's some great plugins, there's plugins to tokenize and sync, uh, you know, like I was talking about with like the color values and all those things, but there's also plugins for things like, um, you know, if I want to have like uh, Microsoft made one called content reel, which is super nice because you know how annoying it is to have like the same name in a, in like a table of, and a list of, you know, things like contacts and you just use the same name over and over again. You just duplicated it and it's lazy and the same avatar. Well, it's really hard to really get a good view of what something should look like when everything looks the same, right? Well, <laughs> content reel, I can select every row and then just go to content reel and click name, full name. And it'll just like put these random names in, or I can make my own. Like I had my own for, uh, an app I was working on where you need to do different uh, job statuses, like job titles. And I just made my own CSV and put it into content reel. And then I click it and can just like, you know, generate those things. So it's really nice. cool. There's a lot of automation there. It's all TypeScript uh, for the plugin. So super awesome to be able to, to write these things. And you can even draw, like you can, you can literally use TypeScript to create objects on the canvas um, and, and manipulate any objects you can create via the mouse like clicking and dragging an oval, you can create that in code. You can say, create circle, here's the radius, here's the X, Y points, here's the fill, all those things you can do in code. So there's a lot of opportunity there to create really cool plugins that really save time, like switching between uh, dark and light themes. Like there's actually a plugin to do that. So if you name your things uh, the way it wants, you click a button, it goes dark mode. Click a button, it goes light nice. mode. I don't have to create two screens now. That's you know? so cool. So that's super cool. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Well, that does it for me. Um, and now I will kick it over to us in the past talking to uh, Joel Parks of Grape City. Kick to the past. <laughs> All right. Now we are talking to Joel Parks of Grape City. Joel, do you want to give us a little bit of an introduction to yourself? Yeah, no problem. So I am uh, Widgmo's junior uh, product manager. Um, I work underneath the, the global product uh, owner. His name's Chris Bannon. Um, and then uh, as well as our uh, global program manager, which is uh, his name's Alex Ivanenko. He manages the, um, the code as well as the dev team. Um, and then as far as, you know, what Widgmo is, is we yeah. are a uh, web uh, UI UX library uh, specifically focused on things like uh, data visualization and data manipulation. So that's things like uh, data grids, data tables, um, charts, map controls, uh, as well as a lot of input controls like combo boxes, um, autocomplete boxes, calendars, in, uh, input date time stuff. So a lot of it is uh, focused on allowing developers to easily implement these controls instead of having to spend a lot of time um, in their application building them out. Nice. Yeah, that's really nice. These are some complex controls. 
Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of work has gone into uh, gone into building these. So we've got an amazing dev team and couldn't, couldn't be happier with them. Yeah. Now uh, it says that it's um, that Widgmo is kind of a little bit agnostic to what uh, like framework or, or flavor of framework that you you pick. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell me a little bit about how Widgmo is is developed. Is it um, does it like favor a framework internally for anything and then expose it to everything or how does that so, work? So uh, the way we have it set up is uh, the, the entire library is built in TypeScript, and then we've got interops for each framework. Um, so what uh, will happen is the, the code will get uh, built out in TypeScript, and then um, our, uh, our uh, product, our, our program manager, uh, Alex, has actually built several uh, generators that will take that code, um, build out, uh, it'll parse that code and build out abstract syntax trees. Um, it'll resolve any uh, type differences that, that may pop up. And then uh, it'll essentially convert those over into the interop for whichever language you're using, or whichever framework, sorry, not language. So that'll be uh, React, uh, Vue, Angular, um, and then obviously JavaScript. Nice. So when you say that, like, like I'm curious about that AST tool because I'm, I'm a huge fan of writing tools <laughs> like that. And, mm -hmm. and just like they're fascinating uh when you say like differences is it like exposing different things based on maybe like the the flavor that you're using like between angular or react for example yeah yeah and and things like uh resolving any issues there that may pop up with parameter naming and uh, parameter names and stuff like that so it's it's very much um kind of taking the code and uh making sure that everything will run um, in whatever framework that you're using. Unfortunately, I wasn't there when those were built, so I don't have as much information um, uh, on those. Sure. Yeah, no, that's that's really cool though. Um, such a, like a fascinating use of, of like, there's so much power in walking the AST. I love it. Yes, um, yes, there really is. <laughs> now Nick's gonna go build his own just because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, now tell me in, internally, or uh, like with that, uh, you mentioned that it's written in TypeScript um, and I'm curious, did it start that way or did it, was it ported from JavaScript? So it was actually, so the, the current um, release version of Widgmo is called Widgmo 5, but we just, we just refer to it as Widgmo. The, the previous iteration was called Widgmo 3. Widgmo 4 was kind of the, the name for the internal build as we transitioned. Mm -hmm. But it was actually like, originally built over in uh, type or uh, in jQuery, so okay. everything was converted over from jQuery to work within TypeScript. Nice, nice. And yeah. that version four thing—it's just like ECMAScript, so that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was our—that was our own <laughs> internal version. Um, We—I've gotten que questions from customers before. That's like, hey, we we use Widgmo three. What what happened to Widgmo four? Like, do we need to go through that to update to the to the the newest version of Widgmo? It's like, no, that was just that was just internal. That was for our own use. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of which, did it cause, um, like, like what is an upgrade story like like that when you go from, uh, you know, like a jQuery-based product to more of a, a vanilla type JavaScript TypeScript application? So um, previously, um, it was it was built using uh, using namespaces, but whenever we switched over to uh, to uh, TypeScript, uh, we had to use ES modules um, to to build that out. Nice. Um, <clears throat> So there was a, there was a lot of issues going in with that, um, but the 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 big benefit from that was that you know bundling size decreases and stuff like that. Um, one of the other uh, big issues that we kind of ran into was that um, with some of the with namespaces and stuff like that, um, the uh, the variable names and, and and variable values and stuff like that didn't need to be static; they could be dynamic, and you could just kind of inject what you needed into them. 
but with the change to ES modules, we needed to, to make everything so that it was static, so that it could, uh, it could be built at runtime instead of having to do that uh, pre-compile building. Um, and that was kind of a big issue that we encountered, but that was, you know, uh, that was around the time when um, Alex, our, our program manager, had kind of started building those generators. So uh, he uh, built a couple of generators that took a big load off of a lot of the other engineers who were working on it to kind of um, automate that, that switch from namespaces to modules. Nice. Does that cause yeah. a lot of problems with people actually u utilizing, you know, if they were on three and having to go not to four, but to five, uh, were there a lot of things where people were maybe overriding things, uh, because you could more easily that now maybe it's more, do you get what I'm saying? Like, because they could more easily override things in this jQuery-based ecosystem, and then you're moving to this new ecosystem. Does that kind of present challenges on, on that kind of transition? Yeah, yeah. We did have a decent amount of people contact us and, and run into issues with, with build, actually building out the application. But uh, luckily, for the most part, they were pretty pretty simple solutions because of, uh, because of how uh, everything had been, been built up to that point. And you know, our great dev team was was super helpful with all of our customers who were experiencing a lot of those technical issues. So it was, it was really, really good job by them, uh, nice. both in the transition to using TypeScript and, and modules over namespaces, but as well as kind of helping our customers who were struggling with that same thing. You know, we had already done it, so, so we could easily walk them through it. Very cool. Well, uh, so that kind of speaks a little bit to the, like, the robustness of the, the API. Like you, it sounds like, you were able to kind of codify a little bit more strictness into it going to Widgmo 5 and, and like TypeScript and using TypeScript to do that. But those edge cases might've just been like, like that, like, oh, you're kind of using this, like sending something that I didn't expect you to send. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so a lot, a lot of those were um, we we both we both work with you know uh, large companies who have hundreds and hundreds of developers, but also small companies who may only have two or three developers. So um, a lot of the cases were you know for the smaller companies with two or three developers who might not have the ability to kind of get that breadth of information that you may have at a larger company where you may have a couple engineers who are like, oh, this is how you'll you'll go about doing that. So. Um, it was uh, a, a lot of those edge cases were primarily with with smaller customers who just didn't have the amount of people who had that breadth of knowledge. Gotcha. What's the development story been like uh, since that transition? Has it gotten easier to to work on core features by themselves? Uh, now? Yeah. Yes. Yes. It actually has because of how the 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 generators work. Essentially, will. <clears throat> we'll implement a, a feature in TypeScript. We'll do some testing with that, make sure everything is running fine just in, in base TypeScript. Um, we'll run the, the generators. Those will, those will parse all the TypeScript code and then create, um, create the packages that, that the uh, developers will actually be using. Um, and uh, the way that it's set up is very similar to, you know, how with, um, if you're building like a .NET application, you have your solution, but then you have several projects within that solution. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of how our interops are set up so that um, whenever you need to do a build, um, if you're only testing within one interop, you don't ha actually have to build out all four interops simultaneously. You can just focus on that one, build that out, and it, it really reduces the build time and helps us get um, features to QA and then, ch and then uh, through QA and checked out and ready for the, the next release. Nice. So, um, let's see, what would you, um, well, 
How did the the TypeScript adoption come about? Uh, do you know um, about that? It was uh, it was actually when um, around the time <clears throat> that uh, that Angular two was coming out, moving away from Angular JS, going to Angular two, um, that we uh, seriously looked at um, doing that that implementation change, and okay. uh, we were actually, I believe, the first enterprise um, library that supported uh, Angular two plus. So nice. uh, so it was really. Um, Less of a like, hey, we think this is something that's cool and that we should look into. And it was more like, hey, this is kind of the way that the industry is going. So better adopt quick and learn learn what we need to. That way we can be you know one of the first out there with, with this new tech. How long did that take to actually do that transition once you decided, you know, okay, we're gonna we're gonna do it this new way? Um, you know, was that tough to get buy-in? And then once there was buy-in, what would that kind of process look like you said there was a version four so i imagine that uh, must have taken a must take a little bit of effort to go since you skipped a whole version yeah yeah so i don't know the specific timetable because this was this was uh right before i started uh, i started working at grape city that that uh that they made this transition but uh the, probably probably about a year and a half to two years before they were comfortable with you know everything because we had we had uh you know obviously the the grid component and and our charts and, and our tables and stuff like that but we also have a, a pretty big host of uh other input based controls so there was a lot to that, that went into testing and making sure that hey this is good enough for uh large companies to be able to put into production without them running into any errors so it was is a is a fair amount of time but you know in in the end it was it was definitely worth uh, getting on that train earlier rather than later yeah, it's pretty uh, bold to to uh, to kind of go that route too to say this is Widgmo five instead of doing what almost everyone did, what what we did with Dojo, which was, <laughs> hey, this isn't Dojo Toolkit anymore; it's just Dojo now. And you know, Angular is like we're not Angular JS; we're Angular, just Angular. You know, mm -hmm. um, so it's pretty bold to be like, nope, we're still Widgmo, and this is Widgmo five, uh, and not. So it does speak. Uh, a lot to I guess how how that was put together because that's sure. it would have been probably much easier just to go this is a different thing and you should use this one and it's it's all you know it's good enough for now and we'll make it better yeah yeah and and a, a big part of that was at the at the time we had some pretty good um uh brand awareness with with the Widgmo name and uh, they were a little, a little bit hesitant to to just give that up at that point so they're like hey we need to we need to stick we're going to stick with the Widgmo brand and we're going to just try and make this work and and you know over the over the past you know 6 7 years it's, you've we've seen that it, it it's it's worked it's managed to 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 work itself out despite the the you know initial struggles that went into making that decision and actually implementing all that code hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's it speaks to it to the product as well, I would think, because like you mentioned that before it was written on uh, kind of on a foundation of jQuery, right? Yep. And that's that's kind of uh, like I'm making presumptions here, so <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but that that makes it some or that, that kind of like makes you think of a previous era of JavaScript. And oh, yeah. for for it to really, you know, survive um, survive being a harsh word, I guess, but to to transition from the older uh, way of writing JavaScript because I mean, you know, 2015 came along and then the language fundamentally changed in a lot of ways. And yeah. uh, to now have a robust product that has just continued on. And you said that there's relatively little, um, little, you know, backwards compatibility issues and things like that. Like that just really speaks to how well it was architected. And, you know, not a lot of teams that we talk to uh, 
come come out right away and just say, oh yeah, we got these like code generators that are doing all these things. Like we're walking the AST and really like that is such a um, an intimate knowledge of the language and the code base that really helps you to to move along. So I, I think that's really cool. Yeah, no, I, I can remember back in, uh, this was probably, I was 20, 2014 and 2015, I was working, you know, uh, still still doing web-based stuff. This was prior to my time at Grape City. And yeah. it was all, you know, MVC with jQuery um, in, in .NET. So <clears throat> um, moving on now and seeing where, where web development is at this point, and essentially, you know, like jQuery not really being at least in newer applications, not really being a thing anymore is, is kind of wild to me. Like look at, looking back mm -hmm. on all of this now. Yeah. And, and, it, and, and you mentioned, you know, the, the generators and the AST and our, our, our uh, engineers are just phenomenal to, to be able to, <laughs> to pull that off and, and really have uh, so few issues moving forward. Absolutely. And, and uh, to that effect, like I saw a tweet recently, I'll include it in the show notes, but uh, somebody charted out jQuery's popularity and it only peaked at the middle of last year. And it's starting to go down now, which really? is just, it shows the bubbles that we live in, right? Yeah, no, that, yeah, actually, yeah, I had assumed that, that by this point in time, and and though that may also just be because of the, the environment that I work in being, you know, exclusively TypeScript at this point since they yeah. had made the change, but like, same. <clears throat> man, I, it, it really, it, it feels weird that, that it was still, it's still as big as it is. Uh-huh. I don't know. I'm just, you know what? I'm skeptical. Like, I think you probably found that at a mom's group on Facebook. And I'm going to go ahead and say, I don't believe that at all. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm Googling it. I literally don't believe you, but um, you know, it, it, it might check out. We'll, we'll find out. <laughs> now you mentioned, so we like, you mentioned the previous version being built on like a, a foundation uh, with jQuery is is there something that has taken its place internally uh that is then used by by all of the different flavors that are generated or is uh, it kind of strictly es modules and and like more vanilla style js oh it's 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 pretty 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 vanilla pretty exclusively nice. you know es modules and stuff like that wanted to wanted to keep it simple just because of all the interrupts that we're trying to manage you can't can't go too crazy there yeah um, while, while maintaining all of that functionality across multiple multiple interrupts Absolutely. And it, yeah, I mean, it also right there speaks to the language just kind of maturing, right? You wouldn't yeah. really have thought to do this, or I wouldn't have thought to do this, you know, pre-2015. So that's that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, is there anything else you want to let us know about uh, Grape City and Widgmo? Um, regarding Grape City and Widgmo, I mean, it's... I. I, I love Widgmo. I've been working with with Widgmo for you know four four a little over four years at this point. Um, have have had a blast doing it the entire time. I love the control set and you know uh, the customers that I've talked to. They're they're all great people and it's been it's just been a blast working with them this entire time. So you know uh, definitely if you haven't heard of us before, definitely check us out. If you're if you're you know looking for for uh, a uh, UI UX library that's focused on you know charts and grids and stuff like that, definitely check us out. Absolutely. Well, Joel, thanks so much for coming on and chatting with us. Uh, we really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Tori. Yeah, thank you. And by the way, I think Nick might be right about jQuery's popularity. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what I was doing the last couple minutes? Possibly. We'll find out. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> thanks. All right, that's the show. Thanks so much for listening. You can find us online at talkscript.fm. You can subscribe or follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods casted to. 
The theme music is by Rabbit the Band at rabbitheband.com. I was rolling down the window Cause I like to feel the wind blow We got a good thing Gonna see where the day goes Take it fast, take it real slow We got a good